There is a time for everything. Worry is sin, and anxiety is not a spiritual gift. All this and more as we continue our year with Solomon. I'm Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What Podcast. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So I want to, uh, I want to pose a question to you guys this morning. I just want you to be thinking about it. Um... This might seem basic, but I want you to just be thinking about this as we look through Scripture. Are all sins the same? Are they equally as bad? Just put that in the back of your mind. Are all sins equally bad? Um, okay, so we're, we're in the middle of the, uh, the year with Solomon. We're, we are going through wisdom literature and what that looks like and taking a deep dive. I realize that our time together, especially as early as it is, can be a little um, tiring. So I'm, uh, I'm doing my best to try to keep things as as gripping as they can be. But it, there's only so much I can do. So I need you to hold on for me. Um, the uh, So we'll start here in verse 1. The theme for what we are going to be reading this morning is um, that everything has its time. Uh, and that's not just in regard to seasons. So let's start with the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It says, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every matter under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embrace. A time to search and a time to give up what is lo- give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Okay, let's. Uh, there's a there's a lot in these these first eight verses. We're not going to be able to dig into all of them too deeply, but. I, I want you to, to think about this, that, that the foundation of all things is that God is in absolute control. Always. He is in absolute control. Because if he is not, that starts to, to lend to other questions. If, for instance, if God is, um, if he's not in control, what is he not in control of? If God doesn't know everything, if he's not, uh, if he's not omniscient, if God has to learn, for instance, if he's ignorant of things, can he truly uh, work all things together for our good? Everything has a, an appropriate allotment of time. Uh, and God works all things according to his will. So consider this. As you are going through each season of your life, whether you are newly married, whether you are engaged, whether you are expecting your first baby, whether you are dealing with the challenges of infertility, whether you are, are dealing with work or a job or in all, whatever situation that you're in, I want you to consider this, that the best metaphor that I can have been able to come up with is that um, if you take a nice New York strip steak and you drop it in a marinade, what happens to that steak? It begins to absorb the flavors of the marinade, right? The seasoning of the marinade. And when you take it out and you put it on the grill, it's going it's to carry that seasoning with it. In the same way, the seasons of our lives, God drops us into a, in a situation, 
And he wants to use that situation to teach us more about who he is. And so each season has its appropriate lessons along the way. And even though we, uh, we want to learn them quickly to get out of the season if, they're, if it's unpleasant, um, that doesn't change that there's an allotted time that we have to deal with that situation. And we can't be wantonly thinking about, oh, okay, well, I can't wait to get to the next thing because that's, that seems m- better for me than what I'm dealing with right now. And what happens is that we, we tend to jump to the next thing. Um, also, I want you to think about this. Not only is God um, in control, but he is the originator of all things. So there is a, uh, a philosophical um, viewpoint that somehow God is this cosmic or divine watchmaker, that he has created this complicated universe, and um, he has just kind of wound it up and let it spin. And he interjects himself periodically. If that's true, that means that as we're walking through life, God is reacting to everything. That means that we, in essence, are just as powerful as he is because we can institute situations and he's got to come in and save us. But I want to read this to you about who God is in John chapter 1. This is, John is, the, is uh, an incredible book of the Bible. The first four ver- three verses say this about, about who God is and his relationship to, our, to his creation. He says, In the beginning was the Word, capital W, that's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In other words, what that means is that Jesus is the one who originated all things. Not just that he created this complex universe in reality, he wound it up and he sent it on its way and he just interjects himself. It says that he is the one who sustains everything. He is the perpetuator of of everything. Hebrews chapter 1 is another example. Hebrews chapter 1 speaks to his his uh, preeminence and how he keeps things moving. Listen to these verses. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, Jesus, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the ages, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things, that's the key right there, upholding all things um, by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The point here is that not only is God the creator of all things, but he is actually the sustainer of all things. So, the, the, these verses here, they show that God has a divine plan for each moment. He, talk, he talks about uh, a time to give birth and a time to die. These are opposite ends of, of all these different spectrums. A time to plant and a time to pull up what's planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. The point here is not the, we can get into the minutia of all these different things and what they could mean to us. But, but I think it's important for us to remember, especially as we're starting our lives out, that there is a divine plan. You've heard the phrase probably since you were a little kid that all things happen for a reason. Um, but 
typically what we do is we assign that reason to ourselves and we say, well, everything happens to a reason for me. But the biblical point of view is that everything happens to a reason for God's benefit. Not for my benefit, but for his benefit. And so as we are reading his word, as we're applying what he says about our situation, it's important for us to always remember that, verse 1, that there is an appointed time for everything. There's an appointed time for you to be in a season of busyness. There's an appointed time for you to be in in a season of rest. There's an appointed time for you to be in a season of plenty. There's an appointed time for you to be in a season of want. All of these things happen for a reason. And the one reason for all of this is so that God can reveal himself to us. We are so anxious to jump into the next thing that we miss what's happening in the moment. And um, it's important for us just to remember that God is actively working through our lives. So let's look at these next couple of verses here, verses 9 through 15. I'll read, I'll read verses 9, 9 through 11. So if this is the case, if everything has a season, every, if everything has its time, look at verse 9. He says, What benefit is there for the worker from that which he labors? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of mankind and with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart without the possibility that mankind will find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So verse 9, he talks about saying that the benefits of life are a gift from God. Um, last week we looked at, at chapter 2 and we, we, talked, we, we talked about... Um, the teacher was reflecting on investing himself in building an empire for himself, building his homestead and building monuments to himself. And he said, all of this, I've done all these things to try to build myself up and make myself important. And I've turned around and realized that all of this is empty. It has left me empty. I've got nothing left. What he says at the end of chapter two and through chapter two is he talks about how we have a, uh, we have a gift in the moment that God has given us a season. And the, the, most delightful thing about our experience is that we get to get to know our Father who created all of these things, who sustains all of these things, that he has uniquely gifted us with a season, sometimes of suffering, many times of suffering and difficulty, because he wants to teach us the goodness of who he is. Because in our own humanity, in our brokenness, we are so self-centered that we're always focusing on the things that we don't have, the things that we think that we're entitled to. And yet he's standing right there saying to us all the time, I'm here. I'm with you. I am the prize. I am the one that you should be seeking after. I am the one who's fulfilling you. All of these things are empty. And what he does is he displays the emptiness of the things around us on purpose so that we can see how full he is. But how many times do we focus on the emptiness, the things that are, that are not stacking up to what we expected them to be? And so, Everything, everything works together for our good if we love God and are called according to his purpose. He says, what benefit is there for the worker from which he labors? In verse 10, he says, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of mankind with which they to occupy themselves. In other words, God has given us a divine orchestrated uh, life. And he's done this with incredible care. He doesn't just watch from a distance. He, he allows us to live in spite of our rebellion to him. We've talked about this a little bit before, that there's two different kinds of grace. There's what's called providential grace, which is, which is God allowing us to live and sustaining us in spite of our rebellion. So if I take a lamp and I, and I unplug it from the wall and I try to turn it on, 
that light bulb is not going to kick on, right? Because I've disconnected it from its power source. James chapter 1 says that God is the source of all things that are good. That means to be disconnected from him means to eliminate our capacity for good. There is no such thing as a good person. Jeremiah 17 says that, that all men, that our hearts are desperately wicked and no one can know it, but the Lord tests and tries the hearts and minds of men. We do not have the capacity for good. So the false statement that why would bad things happen to good people is not biblical. Bad things happen to bad people because bad people do bad things. That's why they call them bad people, right? And so to be disconnected from God means to be disconnected from everything that's good. And so in spite of us pulling ourselves away from him, that instant separation, the wages of sin is death. In spite of that, God still not only allows us to live, but gives us the ability to live in spite of our sin. This providential grace means that him allowing us to even exist is an act of love. The second kind of grace is saving grace or salvific grace. This is the, this is the grace that pulls us out of the pits of hell and into fellowship with God. So he allows us to live providential grace. He sustains us so that we can hear the call of grace, the call of love, the call of peace, and the, and the call of, of sanctification and relationship with him so that when the time comes, he presents himself to us so that we can accept saving grace. The idea here is that God has, for the benefit of everything, of mankind, he has given us a life to live. And even though it may seem like the life that we're living right now is challenging and, and, and overwhelming for us, the reality is, is that everything has its season, even our times of rebellion. But even in our times of rebellion, God is still giving us grace. He is showing us his love. In spite of our disconnection to him, he is still telling us that he loves us and he is, he is sustaining us so that we could trust in him. These verses in the first um, 11 verses, they, they dispel this idea that somehow um, God is not, uh, not involved in our lives or that something is, things are just happening by circumstance, and that's just not true. Everything does have a reason. Everything does have a, a, a reality. Because if each moment, if each season has been divinely orchestrated, engineered, and enacted in our lives— that means that God is always present. Always. There is never a moment that he is not present. Ever. There is a false, uh, there's, a, there's a false doctrine that I grew up hearing quite a bit. That somehow, if I'm living in sin, God is not going to hear my prayers. That I have to confess my sins in order for him to listen to me. But here's a question for you. Before you had placed your trust in Jesus, were you a sinner? Absolutely, right? So how could I ask him for forgiveness if he can't hear me if I'm a sinner? The reality is that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We read this last week in Romans chapter 8. And so if you are a child of God, it, the, the difference between prayer for uh, salvation when you, when you are lost and putting your faith first in, in Christ and now as a child of God walking in, in, in the newness of your mind as your mind is being renewed, the difference is between I'm in trouble, don't tell my dad, to I'm in trouble, I need to talk to my dad. 
That's the difference between the mindset of a child of God and a child of the world, is that our Father is good, and He is gracious, and He is kind. But James chapter 4 tells us if, we're, if we are living in sin and we're praying for things to consume on our own sinfulness, out of love, he is not going to give us those things that are going to hurt us. But all things work according to a divine plan. Um, in the first part of verse 11, he says, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart without the possibility that mankind will find out the work which God has done from, from the beginning even to the end. What's interesting to me is that as we, as we walk through life, even with our limited understanding, um, we are still eternal beings. The second part of verse 11 says that, that he has put eternity in our hearts. This sets us apart from all of the created beings. That God has said, you, my people, human beings, they long for eternity. It doesn't matter what religion that you look at, every single one of them have something to do, some element regarding the afterlife. Every single one. Why is that? Because scripture right here tells us that we have been bent towards eternity. And so he has something that he has planted in us. We know that we have this God-sized hole in our hearts. So um, consider this about who we are. He says that... that um, we don't have the possibility of, of thinking about all the things that God has done, even from the beginning to the end. Uh, scripture tells us a couple of things about the reality of the world. Number one, God is good in every single way. Number two, we are created intentionally by God. You have been uniquely designed on purpose for a purpose. Psalm 139 says that. Before any of your days happened, he knew you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. And he wrote out every single day for you. What's interesting is that the prophet Micah actually talks about in the process of us living out these days that make us suffer, that, we, that, we, that are full of difficulty, as we turn to ourselves, that agony that we feel by confessing our sin and having to deal with the difficulties of our life. Did you know that God in his throne room actually has a, a jar of your tears that you have shed in contrition for your sin? that even the process of you humbling yourself in the sight of God is valuable to him. That not only has he recorded your days, but he keeps track of your sorrows. That's a God who intentionally is caring for us because he is a God who remembers. We, we, uh, James chapter 1 says that we sin because we are naturally drawn toward what is forbidden. Matthew chapter 15 says that it's our rebellious spirit that makes us sinful. Jesus said, he's talking about the Pharisees, and the, it's the passage of scripture where he says, it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, it's what comes out. In the, in the context of that passage of scripture, he's talking about false teachers, and he says, look at the, look at the result of their life, look at the fruit of their life. And then he says, it's not, it, these, these people are, are putting together this false narrative of what God wants for you. He wants you to keep track of all of these rules and regulations, but that's not true. It's what comes out of a person that defiles them, not what comes in. It's our sinful response in rebellion to want to be our own boss. Sin is not about the things that I do. Sin is about who is in control of my life. And so sin comes because we have a rebellious spirit. Jeremiah 17 says that we are rotten to the core and God knows us completely. Romans 6 says that our separation from God means that we are dead, completely dead, with no capacity for good at all. That means as a child of heaven, you sitting in this room right now have been given a divine 
blessing of life. Not just life eternally in heaven, but you have been given the, the gift of the Holy Spirit and to understand what is happening in the world around you. Your fellowship with God has already started. And so heaven is not some distant thing. Heaven is something that we carry with us every day because we are the children of heaven. We see the world in color when those who are of the world who don't have the Holy Spirit see the world in black and white. We've been given a divine gift. Ephesians chapter 2 says that God offers grace that will set us free from our rottenness. Now, here's something that we need to consider. If all things happen at an appropriate time, and those times are ordained by God, specifically catered to a specific person in a specific moment, that means that everything that we walk through is an opportunity to have fellowship with God. Everything. There is nothing too small. There is nothing too large. Everything. I used to, I used to think that it was kind of absurd. My mother, um, when I was a boy, she would um, pray over everything. Everything. You know, there, there, you can take this to an extreme. Like she would pray, what clothes do I need to wear today? What do I need to have for breakfast? What do I need to, you know, should I have coffee this morning? Whatever, you know. But the reality is that if we have an abiding relationship with the Father, there are some decisions, obviously, that he's going to say, you know what, I really don't care what kind of coffee you drink this morning. You just have a cup of coffee if you want one. Um, but the reality is, is that everything, every part of our life, he wants to be a part of. It's not about what we, what we do necessarily. It's about who we're with. So when you're thinking about the frustrations of your season, if you're in a frustrating season right now and you're trying to figure out, God, what are you, what are you trying to teach me? I'm so ready for this to be over. Remember, it's not about what you do. It's about who you are and who you're with. If you're thinking about your career, what you're supposed to do for a living, this whole, th- this whole question of, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And then you end up freaking out because you can never make a decision. Like, what if I choose the wrong thing? What if I choose the wrong job or choose the wrong career? What if I choose, wrong, what if I choose the wrong person to marry? All, that's, all this stuff is just, it's not biblical thinking because God works all things out to, together for his good of his people. Look at verse 12. Verses 12 and 13, uh, 12 through 15, give us some, some more insight into this God-given task. He says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every person who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. And God has so worked that people will fear him. That which is, is what has already been, and that which will, will be has already been, and God seeks what has passed by. So these first two verses in 12 and 13 talk about how the best thing, is life is, the best thing in life is to enjoy God's provision. In verse 12 he says um, that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good. The language here implies the joy of obedience to God's moral standard. Good in Hebrew um, is, uh, is a word that means moral good or beneficial or for our welfare. He says there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. This is to live a godly life. What, he, what he's saying here is that we need to be taking pleasure in our obedience to God. How many times, I know I have done this, I continually do this over and over again. God asks me to do something or I read his word and it convicts me and I fight him tooth and nail. 
I do. Kicking and screaming, he drags me towards obedience because my heart is so rooted in selfishness. But scripture says that there is nothing sweeter, there's nothing better for a person than to walk according to the moral standard of God. We have had those seasons where we have been kicking and screaming, but we've also had those seasons when we've been walking with God, and it's sweet. Man, I would love to stay there. I would love to just live in that spot where it's like, I am, I'm content, and I'm happy, and I'm joyful, and God is meeting every need, and it's just like, I see God everywhere. But you know, the challenge is that the reason why he, he allows us to shift back and forth between those moments is because he wants to remind us of how much he loves us and how much we need him. When I was, uh, some of you have heard the story, when my brother passed away last year, I was asking the Lord, you know, why don't I feel despair? Why don't I feel overwhelmed? And then it hit me. I was reading Romans chapter 8 in my quiet time that summer, and it says that, it says that, that all of the creation is churning under the weight of sin, and he uses the analogy of birth pains, right? Contractions for a woman in labor. That, that creation is eagerly waiting for the, birth, for the revelation of the sons of men, uh, his children. I said, well, I've heard since I was a kid, you know, we, we experience waves of grief. Probably have heard that. But that's actually not a biblical worldview. The baseline is grief. There's no such thing as waves of grief. It's just constant grief all the time. The dumpster fire of our life. But in spite of that, Philippians chapter 4 says that he sends peace that surpasses all understanding, that guards our heart and our mind. That means that God sends waves of peace, not waves of grief. So I asked the Lord, I said, so what about this? What about these moments where I'm okay and then all of a sudden I'm not okay? And you know what he said to me? He said, what you feel in a small little way, being separated from your brother because of his death, I feel an infinite magnitude being separated from you because of your sin. I withdraw my waves of peace from you so that you will remember how much I love you and how much I ache to have a relationship with you. This is the reality of who our God is. That to walk in his moral standard, to be in fellowship with him, is something that is sweet to us. It is something that we were created to do and to be. But this is a process for us as we learn this. He says there's nothing better than to rejoice and do good. He goes on to say that this is a, a gift from God. These small little moments of his provision, right, these are, these are important for us because an attentive soul is going to find that God's constant care is a sweet nourishment to us. Psalm 37, 3 and 4 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The idea here is that we crave, godly, we, we crave godliness because um, we need it. Our souls are hungry for it because there's nothing better for us than to be in relationship and be in, in harmony with him and his will. And so he says there is nothing. This is a gift, right? It's, it's not just that a godly heart is going to be content with what God's provided, but we're going to be overjoyed with his goodness. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. Man, this is a testimony to the actions of God that, that everything that he does will last forever. So consider this this season of life that you're in right now. There will come a day in eternity when someone asks you about this season. 
Imagine, imagine the Apostle Paul coming up to you and saying, hey, Garrett, tell me about that season at Glenpool when you were teaching students, high school students. Tell me about the relationship of that woman at work that you worked with that, that finally came to know Jesus or you planted the seed. I met her just the other day and she said that she, she met you and you told her about Jesus and you were the one that planted the seed in her life. Everything that God does has an eternal aspect, has an eternal impact. So for us, as we're living, every single thing that we go through, every relationship that we have, every, every moment of conversation that we have is going to echo for eternity. Everything that God does will remain forever. And there is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. That means not only is everything that's going to happen going to echo forever, but it means that it is going to, uh, going to happen according to his divine will. So in other words, you can't mess this up. You still only have one job. And as we abide, as we spend time close to the Father, what happens is that we will carry his banner into the world, and we will do it appropriately in every aspect. Because he is wanting to draw us to himself. It says that his provision is complete and it lacks nothing. I want, you to th- I want, to, I want to challenge you with something. That if you have a dissatisfied soul, you are not completely surrendered to Christ in your life. If you are not content with what you have, you are not giving him every part of your life. Paul tells us that I have learned to be content with much. I learned to be content with nothing because I find my contentment in Christ Jesus. When we think that our lives are incomplete, that means that we are not trusting in God's will for our life. That means that we want to be in control because we think we know what's best. The reality is that everything has been ordained. Everything has been orchestrated. Everything has been designed uniquely for you in this moment. Everything will echo for eternity. So think about this in verse, uh, in verse 15, it says that which is and, and, uh, is what has already been and that which will be has already been. And God seeks what has passed by the language here talking about God seeking says that God is continually, um, interacting with or, or chasing after or, or interacting with our lives. Jeremiah 17 says that God, he searches and tries the hearts and minds of men. That means that um, God is, is, is involved in all things. This verse speaks to his omniscience, his, his knowingness of everything, that he is constantly searching and working and moving and, and interacting with our lives. That there is nothing that has already been um, and that which has already been has, has already been established. Okay, now consider this. These last several verses are really where the challenge comes in. Because as I begin to work through these verses, I begin to be convicted in my own heart. Look at these, these, uh, these, this next section in verses 16 through 22. He starts in verse 16. He says, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself regarding the sons of mankind, God has tested them in order for them to see that they are as animals, they to themselves. For the fate of the sons of mankind and the fate of animals are the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, 
and there is no advantage for mankind over animals, for all is futility. These first couple of verses here, in verse 16, he talks about how man has no moral compass by himself. The teacher is acknowledging here in these verses that our judgment is incomplete and that God is going to make all things just in the end. He says, I go to the places where there's supposed to be justice and there's no justice. There's, there's bias and there's prejudice. I go over here to the place where there should be moral absolutes and there's no moral absolutes. We live in a generation that echoes all the generations behind us that justice is not a thing. Human justice is not a thing. There is no capacity for justice within the human spirit. None at all. The secular worldview will tell you that that, it, that is possible, that there is a moral good, that there is a moral evil. But the challenge is that there's no moral standard for the secular world. There are still parts in the world, for instance, in, uh, in parts of, of the Pacific and the Pacific Islands and in Eastern Asia and in some places around Australia where up until 2012, cannibalism was still legal. There are still places in, around the world where, where human beings are bought and sold. There are still places around the world that, that openly defy how God has made people. And so to say that there is a moral there's a moral compass embedded within the human spirit apart from God is not true. We don't have the capacity. And so what he's saying here is that I look for justice, I look for righteousness, but there's just wickedness and injustice. And so he says, but God is going to make things all good in the end. I said to myself in verse 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for a time for every matter and for every deed that's there. We will be held account. See, in the process of of experience, this incomplete justice, the teacher points out that God allows this to happen because he's revealing to us that we are powerless without him. The challenge for us is that as we walk through this, we start to think, oh no, I've got a handle on this, but that's not true. Look at verse verse 19. He talks about the fate, uh, our fate compared to the animals. He says that that we're going to see the same fate. Even though God has breathed his same life into both of us, um, we all die. Regardless, there's no way for us to escape the realities of sin. None. So in order for us to, 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 to live and to understand things correctly, we've got to start with this baseline reality that we do not have the capacity to do things that are good. We don't, apart from Christ. And so we have to remember that every moment that we live, every season that we live, has been, has been divinely orchestrated so that he can draw that selfishness out of us. And he can teach us to be more like him and to know who he is, to be, to, be, um, to be synonymous with his character. First, Second Timothy 3 talks about how sin is going to gradually corrupt the world and things are going to grow worse and worse. Um, what this means, this, this isn't saying that, that we are the same as animals as in we, we have the same inheritance or that there's going to be dogs in heaven. That's not what I'm saying. But the, what, the, what this is saying is that all of creation is going to suffer under the weight of sin, and eventually it's going to be compromised. We will all die. But look at verses 21 through 22. This is interesting. Who knows that the spirit of the sons of mankind ascends upward and the spirit of the animal descends downward to the earth? I have seen that nothing is better than when a person is happy in his activities, for that is his lot for who will bring him to see what will occur after him? In verse 21, this, this 
phrase, who knows, is rhetorical. He's, he's implying the obvious, that all of creation innately knows that there will be eternal consequences for their life decisions. We are going to be judged, humans are going to be judged for how we deal with um, our lives. But we're the only ones that are going to be resurrected in the last day. The, the, the animals don't share in that, that uh, with us. It says here again that there's nothing better for a person than to be happy in his activities. Happy in the Hebrew uh, means to take pleasure or to enjoy. The teacher's pointing back to his previous point that the best things in life are to live according to God's moral standard. Okay, let me go back to my first question. Are all sins the same? Yes, they are. To God. All sins are the same. So, Did you know that, that the average person in America, probably the average person in the world, I don't, I don't know the statistics worldwide, but in America, um, we spend more than 50% of our time worrying about either the future or the past. Over half of our lives, we're going to spend thinking about a season separate than the one that we're actually in. Scripture tells us in um, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, don't worry because tomorrow has enough, because today has enough worry of its own. In Philippians 4, he says, do not be anxious. I've been thinking about those two terms, worry and anxiety. And um, in other places of scripture, these, uh, the ideas that we have, these sinful ideas that we have, that we meditate on, they are the same as actually doing what we are thinking of. For instance, you see another person and you lust after them. Jesus said you're guilty of committing adultery in your heart. He says if you hate your brother, you are guilty of murder. So what does that say about worry? He told us do not worry. Anxiety is worry with roots. We have allowed our worry to embed itself in our lives. So if he says do not worry, and do not be anxious, why is it that we kind of just say, oh, well, you know, it's just kind of who I am as a person. This is, this is not godly living. Consider this. Have you ever noticed that we spend most of our time worrying about what's going to happen in the past or what's going to happen in the future? Paul tells us uh, in Romans chapter 8 that... Uh, the future can't separate us from the love of God and that we are more than conquerors through Christ. He says that the future can't separate us from God. In other words, the future has nothing to do, has no place. Our worry about the future has no place in our faith. None. Worry is not a spiritual fruit. It's not a spiritual gift. Anxiety is not a spiritual gift. It's the result of a rebellious spirit against God. So what does Satan try to do? Try to do. He tries to encourage us to think about all the things that could be or all the things that might have been. We spend so much time. In fact, he doesn't even have to, to convince us to worry about things. He just reminds us of things that are out of our control and then tells us that we have something to do with it. Oh, if only you would have made these choices back when you were younger, your life would be different. If only you would choose right this time, maybe the future won't be as bad as the past was. Satan loves to convince us that we're living in the wrong moment. That somehow we should be living in the future 
because it's going to be better, or we don't want to live in the future because it's going to be worse, or he tries to convince us that we should be living in the past because that was better. We get Uncle Rico syndrome, where it's like if I just got in the last, the last fourth quarter of championship game, we would have gone to state, I would have gone to NFL, right? Living in the past. Satan loves to convince us of this passage right here, that it is not true. That seasons don't matter. That God has not orchestrated our lives on purpose. That the moment that you're in right now is a waste. That it's temporary. That somehow this is a throwaway moment. Today, this season, this part of your life is just something that is not going to be important in the future. But that's not what this passage of Scripture says. It says that this is absolutely, fundamentally, divinely inspired, orchestrated by God. This moment, today, as we sit here in this room, the parts of your life, your job, your family, the challenges with your relationships, the sweet parts of your relationships, all of these things are a gift from God so that we can see him working in our lives. Anxiety is worry that has taken root in our lives and we have assumed that we are in control. This is so dangerous because Satan steals our daily allowance of joy and pleasure that comes from approaching the good gifts that God our Father has given us by convincing us that what God has said in his word is not true. He is the God of all things, all things. And the greatest gift that he's given us is this moment right now, this day right now, this season that you're in right now. Whether you think that you're walking in victory or not, that doesn't matter. Your opinions about where you are don't matter. The reality is is that God has designed this moment for you on purpose, as unpleasant or as wonderful as it is. And we get the choice to choose whether or not we are going to accept his gift of this season and draw close to him and learn about who he is, or we can choose to turn within ourselves and rebel against who he says he is and say that we are in charge and we're, we're, on, char- we're, on, we're on top of it. But the problem is that if we keep doing the same thing that we've always done over and over again, we will never move forward. Because we're not going to move forward until we know what God wants us to know about him in this, in, in this time in our lives. So I want to encourage you in this. If you are a person who is wound up about the future, what is going to happen, and you're living there, or you're someone who is wound up in the past and you're living there, both of those options are unbiblical and they are ungodly. And you need to make that right with God right now. You need to talk to your spouse about where you are. This is something we have to live by what's true. And what's true is that God has uniquely ordained this season for all of us to walk a certain path. And we cannot turn our noses up and tell him that he doesn't know what he's doing. For the sake of your family, for the sake of your mental health, for the sake of your marriages, live in today and let tomorrow worry about itself. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org. Come on.